But this is a really practical gospel passage, really applicable to our lives, but perhaps often ignored, often overlooked, because it's hard. It's hard to give fraternal correction. So I'm going to unpack what Jesus has said here. I'm going to, then I'm going to add a couple of things that hopefully will be helpful. And I'll start by doing a review of a couple of things I've talked about before to give us, to give us the proper context for all of this. So the first is the, the story of the gospel, the story of Christianity, very briefly summarized in four parts, created, captured, redeemed, and response. So we've been created by God the Father, who is love. He created us for relationship with him. We were then captured by the enemy. That's the second part. Then we were redeemed by the Son, the Son Jesus Christ, who became one of us and died on the cross. And now we are invited to respond. We're invited to say yes to this so that we can live in this relationship with God here on earth and for all of eternity. That's Christianity in a nutshell. Then the second thing is the relationship identity mission framework, which is the most important thing of all is our relationship with God. From this flows our identity of being his sons and daughters, and then we're sent on mission. The relationship is free. It's offered to us. Christ already paid for it, for it so to speak. So now we're invited to say yes and then eventually be sent on mission. We tend to get this backwards. We tend to start with mission and try to work our way up to our relationship. This is wrong. This is an error, a lie that the enemy proposes to us. And another piece here is what's called the first principle of foundation of St. Ignatius of Loyola. He said this, man and woman, man is created to praise, reverence, and serve God, and by, and by this means to save his soul. This is what Christianity is about. This is what life is about, to praise, reverence, and serve God, and by this means to save our souls. Okay, so now we get to, we can, now we have the proper context to, un, to unpack what Jesus has said here. And notice that what he has said here can be considered spiritual works of mercy. There are three of them that are relevant, to instruct the ignorant, to counsel the doubtful, and to admonish the sinners. If, if somebody's doing wrong, something wrong against us, they probably fall into one of these three, three categories, the ignorant, the doubtful, or the sinner. And so by correcting them, we're performing a spiritual work of mercy. And this is, of course, an expression of love. We heard in the first reading, or the second reading, from St. Paul's letters to the Romans, he said, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. So this is an expression of love to carry out fraternal correction. Now here's what Jesus said. Jesus said to his disciples, if your brother sins against you, that's an important point. He's not just saying if somebody out there in the world is sinning, but if your brother sins against you, the instructions that follow have to do with this. If your brother, if your brother sins against you, and I think for parents, parents of young children, this applies to their children as well. In other words, if your brother sins against you or your young children, this would, this would fit. Because parents of young children are responsible for their children, their children's well-being and so forth. Not of adult children. Adult children are their own agents. Their parents are not responsible for them. But parents of, their, of children, young children, your bro- if your brother sins against you or your children, and then here's the three-step three plan for fraternal correction by Jesus. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And of course, 
these male pronouns refers to both men and women. Go and tell him or her his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have one over your brother. Great, praise God. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you. So this is the second step. Take one or two others along with you so that every fact may be established on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Let's make sure there are no misunderstandings, no, nothing is, is, hiding, is in hiding. Let's bring everything to the light by the testimony of two or three witnesses. That's the second step. If he refuses to listen to them, here's the third step. Tell the church. Tell them individually. Bring one or two others. Tell the church. And the church, of course, means the priest, especially the pastor, or the bishop, if appropriate, or the pope. There's a proper hierarchy here in the church. There's a story about Mother Teresa that she was known for answering all of her letters. Every letter that she received, even at the height of her fame, she would receive. She was getting thousands of letters from all over the world, and she would answer them. And I just went recently, I went to a display of hers, of her life and her surroundings, and they had her chapel, and they had her room. And in her room, a very simple room, just a bed, a crucifix, a little image of St. Therese of Lisieux, and a writing desk that, where she wrote her letters. So at night, after her sisters had gone to sleep, she would do all her prayers and her work during the day, and at night she would respond to this correspondence. One seminarian one time wrote to her and said, my, the liturgy of my seminary is really terrible. Complaining to, the, to Mother Teresa about the liturgy at his seminary. This was not me. <laughs> I, I might have thought about doing something like this, but I didn't. <laughs> Maybe the seminarian thought that he was telling the church, you know, by telling Mother Teresa, but what can Mother Teresa do? She responded saying, tell your, your rector and tell your bishop, you know, I can't help you. So tell the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, then treat him as you would a Gentile or tax collector. Okay, this is Jesus' three-step plan. Now, a couple of additions here of my own, if I may. This has implications for both receiving feedback and giving feedback, receiving fraternal correction and giving it. <clears throat> for somebody else may want to give feedback to us. One of our brothers and sisters may want to see something that we've done against them, we've sinned against them, so now they want to bring this to our attention. I think it's really important to be open to receiving fraternal correction. And one way by which we can be open is by not immediately responding to it. Because here's the thing, I don't know about you, maybe this is just me. If somebody gives me fraternal correction, my immediate response, my immediate internal response is to be defensive. Is to say, oh, but here's what you're not seeing. Oh, but here's my side of the story. And I may even be right. I'm always right, by the way. No, just kidding. I may, we may even be right when we receive fraternal correction and it's wrong. Maybe that's the case. But when we respond immediately, we be, we're defensive immediately. What we're implicitly communicating to this person, whether we intend to or not, we're communicating to them that we're not really open to hearing what they have to say. And we do this once and then we do it again, and we do it again, and we do this with enough people, they're not gonna bring us fraternal correction anymore. That person won't, and no one else will either. Because we're, we're telling, we're communicating to others that we're not open to this. 
Even if that one time they're, they're wrong and we're right, next time they might be right. And if we say, if we communicate that we're not open to it, then we won't receive that right, right feedback the next time. So instead we can just say, thank you for sharing. Thank you for sharing. I'll consider that. And then we can take a day, take a week, let the emotions settle, take it to prayer, take it to a trusted mentor, not somebody who just pat us on the back and say, oh yeah, you're right. But somebody who will actually challenge us if there is a place, if, if this is the time and place to be challenged. And now we can apply that correction to our lives and then we can grow. It would be a really bad place to be, to arrive at a place where no one is telling us, giving us fraternal correction anymore. Remember in high school, in playing soccer, my coach used to yell at me a lot and give me lots of fraternal correction. And one time I complained to him about this. I said, you, you're, always, you're always telling me that I'm doing things wrong. And he's like, and he, he responded to me, he said, you should get concerned once I stop telling you what you're doing wrong. That's when, that's when you should get concerned, know that there's a problem. So instead to be open to receive fraternal, fraternal correction. Okay, that's the implication for receiving. And this is, last thing here, this is also a spiritual work of mercy, to bear patiently those who wrong us. So even if the fraternal correction is wrong, to bear it patiently is a work of mercy. Okay, now here, forgiving, forgiving fraternal correction, which is really the immediate context here of what Jesus is saying. Jesus is telling this to his disciples, do this for your brother and sister when he or she sins against you. We go through this step process that I won't, won't repeat right now. We know what it is. We go through this step process. My suggestion is this, that we not see their changing as the goal but rather simply to give praise and glory to God and to save our souls. Here's an example. Suppose Deacon Tom, I asked him before Mass if I could embarrass him, and he very humbly said yes. Suppose Deacon Tom did something wrong, or more precisely, suppose Deacon Tom sinned against me. I go through this step, three-step process, and I tell him individually, he doesn't listen. I go to two or three others, bring them with me. He, doesn't, he still doesn't listen. Then I tell Father Flores, he still doesn't listen. If my goal were to change him, I very quickly become bitter and resentful at the fact that he is not changing. And I put up a wall, a barrier between me and him. My relationship with him starts to de deteriorate. Not because of something he is doing. He already did his wrong a long time ago. But now because of something that I'm doing, I'm the one doing this between us, not him. And this is happening because I had as my goal, as my outcome, the changing of him when I first approached him in the first place. Instead, if I have the proper goal, the proper orientation, which is what? To praise, reverence, and serve God, and by this means to save my soul. If I have this as my goal, then I do what, I'm, what Jesus tells me to do. I go through this step process. And then I'm totally free from the outcome. I'm free from whether he changes or not. He's his own agent. He's going to do what he's going to do. He's responsible for his life. He may choose to listen to me or he may not. But if he doesn't, that doesn't affect me anymore. Because I'm free from that. I'm, free from, I'm not attached to that outcome. I can continue loving God and loving him 
and loving others the best that I can, and hopefully growing in that, growing in this exercise of love, which is the fulfillment of the law. It's not changing him that's the fulfillment of the law. It's me loving him. Now, if you don't like my explanation of that, here's Jesus' explanation from the first reading we just heard. You know, the, the church is brilliant. The church puts these readings together. So from the first reading from the prophet Ezekiel, if I tell the wicked, oh, wicked one, you shall surely die. So this is the Lord saying to Ezekiel, if I, the Lord, tell the wicked, and you, Ezekiel, do not speak out to dissuade the wicked from his way, the wicked shall die for his guilt, but I will hold you responsible for his death. So if I don't say anything to Deacon Tom, he will die for his guilt, but I, but I will be held responsible for his death. But if you warn the wicked, D Deacon Tom is not wicked. <laughs> but if I warn the wicked, trying to turn him from his way, and he refuses to turn from his way, he shall die for his guilt, but you shall save yourself. Okay, hope that's clear. But here's another question, maybe to just take a step, go peel a layer here and go a step deeper. This is really practical. We can apply this to our lives. But this raises the question, why is this so hard? Why are we attached to the outcome of changing the other person when we see them doing something wrong, especially if they're sinning against us? Why can't we just be free to love God and to love others? Why do we have the inclination to control others? Here's an insight from Benedict XVI. He said that the enemy is cunning. You know, the enemy can't create anything. He can only distort. He takes something that's true and he twists it, bends it. And he said to the serpent, said to Adam and Eve, if you do this, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will be like God. That's true. We were created to be like God. This is why God created us, to enjoy his life, to live within the Trinity. This is why God created us. But the further truth, the more precise truth, truth is that we were created to be like God the Son. God the Son. We're sons and daughters in the Son. The enemy twisted this truth and convinced Adam and Eve that they could become like God the Father. Not the Son who receives freely what the Father provides, but God the Father who creates, who is the source, who initiates, who provides who controls, who manipulates. Here's what he said. What in fact did the serpent say? He did not deny God, but insinuated a subtle question. Did God say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? This is how the serpent awoke in them the suspicion that the covenant with God, the covenant with God, the greatest thing of all, was nothing but a chain that bound them, that deprived them of freedom and of the most beautiful and precious things of life. The temptation became the temptation to build by themselves the world in which to live. Does this sound familiar? I don't know about you, but this is the temptation in my head. 
to build by myself the world in which to live, to be God the Father, to refuse to accept the limitations of being creatures, the limitations of good and evil of morality. They saw their dependence on the love of God the Creator as a burden of which to free themselves. It's a burden to receive from the Father His love that He wants to give me, His providence, His mercy. This is a burden, I was convinced, by being a son of Adam and Eve. I must then provide for myself. This is always the essence of temptation. But when the relationship with God is falsified with a lie, putting ourselves in His place, in the place of God the Father, all other relationships are altered. I now start looking at others as if I'm God the Father for them. And now I have to change them because they're not doing something right. The other then becomes a rival, a threat. So what is the antidote to this? It's clearly not just to work harder. This would just be to try to become more self-sufficient, more self-reliant, more like God the Father. Instead, it's to become God the Son. To become sons and daughters in the Son. And this is, by the way, why it was the second person of the Trinity, the Son, who was incarnated. Not the Father, not the Spirit. God the Father didn't become incarnate and redeem human nature. Because if He had, then it would redeem human nature to being like God the Father, which wouldn't make any sense. It would be totally disordered. But rather, God the Son took on human nature and redeemed human nature and thus restored it to its original state, its original innocence, which is to be a son, to be a receiver, a recipient, to receive what the Lord wants to give. And what does the Lord want to give? He wants to give us himself. God the Father wants to give us himself. This is what we were created for. And how do we become this? How do we become God the Son? Well, we are what we eat. Eating the body and blood of Jesus Christ in the Eucharist. And consuming Him too in the Word, in the Word of God, in the Scriptures, every week or every day. Receiving Jesus, consuming Jesus in word and sacrament is a good place to start.